Okay, folks, so here's the show. Heroes and howlers, and the rest is history. My name's Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson... Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thank you, Maggie. Okay, it's about those weird bits of history, the bizarre twists of fate. The cock-ups actually made the (laughs) stuff-ups that have made the world what it is today. G'day, everyone, and welcome to our second bunch of extra helpings. That's right, a second serve. Yeah, the, the idea is that these are, well, for a start, we're going to answer some questions you gave us, and thank you so much for the feedback. Also, too, can I also say, if you're new to the um, podcast, there's go back. Go yeah. back and check the back catalogue, because we've got some weird stuff and some fun stuff at the start as well. <laughs> yeah, plenty in there in season one. And also, thanks, of course, uh, to Diamantine and the Batuta guys who host this show, The Publishing House. Yeah. Um, episodes six to ten, though, today is what we're going to have a look at, isn't it, mate? Yeah, and before we get started, then, mate, I've got a slight apology to yeah. make to everyone. Yes. At the end of our first extra... Mikey. Yes, thank you, yes. mate. At the end of our first extra helpings... I did mention there might be some pork crackling in this extra helpings. But as usual, Mikey overpromised. I overpromised. In fact, <laughs> as, as usual, Mike, Mikey A overpromised and B got ahead of himself. Yeah. That will be coming up. It is coming up. It is coming yeah, up, I, but I, not today. Okay. But, and so we're getting in today. We're going to start with episode six, which, which of course is the Alexander the Great, which is the horses, not, Bucephalus. You love this stuff. And the big question that we've been getting on Twitter is, you know, when we come to Alexander's legacy, you know, yes. which world... Does he really belong? Because we made the point, obviously, he's a Macedonian, he's not Greek. Um, and then you've got all those books like the Alexander Romance, that kind of thing. Physically, of course, he was born in Macedonia, yeah, um, but then it, he died in Persia. And uh, and I, I think, you know, in terms of the legacy, I really do believe that, you know, Persia was the key for Alexander. You know, Bactria, the land of the thousand cities. His first wife was Roxane, who was mm. Bactrian. You know, his, he also married two Persian princesses, Satyria and Parisatis. You know, so he really saw... Saw, I think he saw the future in the East um, yes. and he really wanted to make, well, for example, when Darius died, you know, they've got that thing about you know, Darius's dying breath saying that you will be my heir, Alexander, you'll be the king of Persia. And then he ends up taking that title, Michael, uh, the Lord of Asia. You know, right. right. So he's not the Lord of the Greeks. He's not no. Lord of Asia. He's Lord of Asia. That's how he wants to go down in history. And of course, in terms of successes, you, the Antigonids in Greece and Macedonia are important, but nowhere near as important as the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, who we'll get to, of course, oh, in episode yes. two well, that, that's of this two, new that's season. 200 years of Egyptian history, but we'll get to that soon. Yes. Speaking of him becoming Persian. Yeah. Here's something I'd like to talk about. He set himself apart from a lot of, not just the military leaders, but people of the time. Alexander the Great, ladies and gentlemen, smelt fantastic. Ooh, nice. In fact, Aristoteles, who was, he was a student of Aristotle, so right. a contemporary, yeah. and a philosopher in his own right, mm. he wrote about Alexander mm. that he had a most agreeable odour exhaled from his skin, mm. and that his breath and body all over was so fragrant mm. as to perfume the clothes which he wore next to him. Mm. The other thing, too, is what... Oh, that's, that's, and that's quite different from his, from his dad, isn't it, Philip well, Macedon? Well, because well, a second, because there are numerous stories about Alexander having a bath. Right. Uh, Diodorus Sicilius, the Greek historian, mm. who wrote between 60 and 30 BC, said that after winning the battle, mm. the royal pages now took over the tent of Darius, as the Battle of, of Issus, right, yeah, and yeah. prepared Alexander's bath and dinner. Then there's like ah. three or four other mentions of it. Right. Which, and you mentioned yeah, his father. Yeah, his father would never had a bath in his life. Then <laughs> off the second of Macedon, it was actually, he looked down on bathing right. as being a bit soft. Mm-hmm. And he decreed that men should only 
be able to bathe mm. in cold water. In fact, not just men. The only people that could, in Macedonia, under Philip II's rule, mm. that could bathe in warm water yeah. and have a nice warm bath yeah. were women who'd only just recently given birth. Right. So he was a sort of a, a cold shower kind of Cold guy, shower guy, yeah. Which brings me to the crown and uh, Philip there with the cold showers. Uh, this, so, um, I'm not even starting that. I'm not opening up any Philip yeah, <laughs> stories I, I, on this I, I, one. I'm sorry, Maggie. It's something about rulers called Philip and cold showers. All right. But also, too, I wanted to talk about how... Uh, Alexander may have also used scents because some historians say you don't, but let's sort of fragrance. Yeah, fragrance. Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, Persians at the time of the battles when, mm. when he makes expansion, mm. they controlled the scent trade, mm. and they are believed to have invented the non-oil based perfume or what we would call cologne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love this bit. Persian kings would even have artisans create personal scents just for them, made out of spices, and only they were allowed to wear it. They, so they had their own scent. They invented the signature scent. Oh, ah, they're the Calvin Klein of... <laughs> exactly. Or, you know, J'adore. Uh, yeah, yeah, Coco Chanel, yeah, okay. Yeah, Beckham, Beckham's got a scent, and I don't want to know what it is. Right. So Alexander did adopt customs such as clothing and other traits of Persian culture. Mm. So I think he also did wear aftershave. Mm. Well, not aftershave, but cologne, but it does bring me to Alexander the Great aftershave. Right. Which... This, this is weird. Now. It, it was launched in 2018, but it is made in Alexandria. <laughs> Where did you, Have you been shopping again, mate? I went a little bit of shopping online. <laughs> Actually, it's not that cheap, mate. It's oh. up, there, up there with Tom Ford aftershaves, which is weird. But what they did to you know work out what it would smell like was yep. they, they looked at the sort of spices and herbs and smells that Alexander would have come across would in have, his travels. Would have existed back then. Yeah, go on. Cinnamon, cedar, vanilla, mm -hmm. musk, amber, rose, and so on. But, mate, I've just got to read you their um, advertising blurb. Go on. Alexander the Great conquered the ancient world. Said and, did. And was undefeated in battle. You have your own worlds to conquer. Tell the world who you are with Alexander the Great. <laughs> that's that you can buy. That's you, this you can buy that. Okay, that's right. this slogan. There but, you go, folks. Off the, you go. Go and buy that for uh, somebody's birthday. <laughs> but but all, all modern aftershaves aside, I think it does prove that point you were talking about. How he did adopt very Persian yes. ways of living. That's right. And okay. And we had a couple of questions about the horses as well, Mike. Yes, um, of course. And animals. And don't don't worry. There are going to be some more animals coming up in season two. So there you go. Yes. Okay, folks, so episode seven was the, of course, well, how could we forget, Louis Fourteenth and One-Eyed Kate. One -eyed, one -eyed. Now, hang on, didn't you get some some emails from people who thought it might have been an April Fool's joke? Yes, yes, that went out on the, on the week of April Fool's. It was not an April Fool's, I assure you. And in fact, our listeners very kindly sent in those pictures, didn't they, mate? We've got some pictures on it. If you go onto Facebook or onto Twitter, you'll see some pictures of these gargoyles, well, sort of stone carvings on the hotel De Bove, aren't they, right? which belong to one I came. Well, to one I came that she was given to it uh, by, by Louis. Yeah, the, 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 actually, by Louis's mum. That, right. that was the present she got for taking Louis XIV's virginity. That's right. She's she got two houses, actually. There you go. So, yeah, so have, have a look on social media, guys. Um, but the big question we want to ask, well, sort of what the listeners are being pointing out as well, just how important that progeny was. Well, um, it's central, isn't it? Yeah, and we've got some great examples, of course. You, yeah, you've got Edward the Confessor dying, um, with that, he's childless, and that's basically brings the the whole of the Anglo-Saxon era to an end. It brings uh, William over from Normandy. Yep. Off you go. You've got the uh, Spanish War succession, which in the early 18th century, because Charles II died, you know, that just causes a major catastrophe down in Spain. But the big question that a lot of people have asked is, why was it so 
extreme in France? Why was France even worse than everywhere else in Europe at the time? And the the answer is, Mike, and somebody, uh, I'm glad we, uh, someone asked this because we should have pointed it out at the time. It's all about the Salic Law. And yeah. The Salic Law was, introduced, it was in, uh, introduced by Clovis, who was uh, one of the early French kings. And basically that Salic Law is the one that says, you know, that females cannot inherit. You cannot inherit through the female line. It's only through the male line. So that was so important in France. And because, of course, you'd had the the big problems with Henry III going into Henry IV, which had created the French wars of religion, that's why when it came to Louis XIV's time, everyone really was just petrified that he was going to die without an heir. And I think yeah, you you were saying that something about the, even his bastard son, oh, man, yeah. just before he died, he'd said that, look, if I, if Louis, because Louis XV, well, the one that became Louis XV, he was sick at the time as well. It looked like they're both going to die where within the yeah. months of each other. Oh, and maybe Louis, the, who would be Louis XV, would die first. So he, Louis XIV actually says, look, I'm going to change the laws here. And I will make it so that my bastard sons can inherit the crown just to make sure there's no more anarchy, there's no, you know, it doesn't descend into chaos again. Yes, I mean, well, no one calls him the bastard maker, but oh, he was up there, mate. <laughs> now, so, and of course, the, when we talk about French heirs, we talk about you know, the Dauphin or the Dauphin. There's different pronunciations. I'm not going to say who's right or wrong, but uh, you've got a lovely little story well, about the old Dauphins, haven't you, mate? Yes, yes, I do, mate. In fact, we're going to have to jump forward a few Louis to mm-hmm. Louis the Sixteenth and Marie yep. Antoinette, right? Now, Remember when we talked about the episode about how disastrous their love life yes, was yes. and how important that was. And people sneaking in to, yeah. to, to make notes while they were at, yeah. on the job. Which probably didn't help, but they were so desperate for them to, to have a kid yeah. that when they did, and in fact the name of the child was Louis Joseph Xavier Francois, mm. when they finally popped out a male heir, the court went berserk. Right. People lined up to take a, take a look at the new prince. They said he was the most beautiful child in the world. And made it wasn't just his face that was making that impression. Go on. Apparently the contents of his diapers were a rather beautiful, according to the French court, yeah. yellowish green. His poo. His poo. The was yellowy green. Poo. The royal baby put <laughs> out a shade so pleasing to the French aristocrats that all the fashionable women of Paris were soon emulating it, handing over large sums of money to dressmakers, hat makers and ribbon makers, to anyone who could satisfy the <laughs> desire to dress in this new shade, which was known as... Caca de fan. <laughs> Caca de fan. Yeah, basically, poo of the prince. So it wasn't just a greeny yellow. It was a it was a special, it was a unique blend, a yeah, unique blend of, dog, of green and yellow, a caca dauphin. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, it was nothing more than a passing fashion. <laughs> and let's face it, soon, it wasn't long before the French would have much bigger problems to worry about <laughs> than a kid's poo. But yeah, no, it was the height of fashion. In fact, a writer for the British woman's magazine, Belle Ensemble, yeah. would write with incredible incredulity, finally have we not seen, and this is, undoubtedly is the heights of ignominy. Have we not seen the fair sex seeking the colour of their ribbons in the very excrement of the royal infant? Mm. The colour caca de fan adorned every dress. Wow. And this word, which I cannot say now without repugnance, was then in the mouths of all the best-bred women. Wow. So it's it's, it's a nappy story, it's a colour story, but also too, it gets back to the thing about progeny. Yeah. You know, how often that these... How important the Dauphins were. The, yeah, they were yeah. just hanging by the sun, a thread. The son and heir, unfortunately. Yeah. And it, is, it was son and heir, not daughter and heir, but uh, no. we... We have been 
thanked by our listeners for getting a few good heroines in there. And of course, you know, one eye Kate was the real heroine of that episode. And of course you've got, you know, Louis Moman of Austria and his wife, I suppose, Marie Therese as well. She, she should go down in history as an important player, just, you know, because basically she finishes the Franco Spanish war. Oh, well, the, the Pyrenees are no more. Because they stop fighting. And so uh, the, can I just say here, we've got a few more female heroes coming. Yeah. Well, that's it. For, se- for season two, we really have, we're, um, we're pushing on with those, you know, we because obviously last week we were talking about Alan of Aquitaine, aren't we? It's, oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's very much uh, heroines and howlers as much as heroes and howlers for season two. Well, I think when we say heroes, we're non-gender specific with heroes, mate. All right. Our next episode, well, let's face it, it was Paul's idea of bloody heaven. <laughs> yes. Because it did involve the Spice Roads and it did involve the Polos and your theory that Marco Polo was a bit of a bit of a dud and all the all the heavy lifting was done by his father and his mm. uncle. Now I I've got to say I agree with you, but it did spark up a bit of controversy on yes, the old no, social did. media. We've got a few challenges, so um, uh, I did put a map out there, so please go and have a look at it. Because Can I just point out, that's his answer to everything. <laughs> now, I think that map's really important, actually, mate, because it just shows. It shows the outward journeys, because, of course, the first journey Niccolo made went a different route to the second journey which Niccolo led as well, the second one that Marco went on. So he, he not only did he cross Asia, Niccolo Polo, not only did he lead expeditions, he led two completely different routes to get to China, to get to the Mongols, um, which is important. And of course, the, the other thing that map shows is that when they came home, when finally, and to be fair, by 1291, when they did return, Marco probably was the leader. But in 1291, to get home, how did he get home? How did Marco do it? Did he plough a new furrow? No, you got the you got the Chinese to give them a lift back on their boats. Oh, you and did? They, no, they actually they sailed home, you see, because uh, well, uh, hang on, 24 they, years they're trying to escape, trying were, to get home from Kublai Khan's we, court. Because the Khan didn't want them to go, did That's he? That's right, he didn't want them to go, and he, he kept on saying no every time they asked to leave, but eventually they did a deal, and they said, oh, well, you know, you want, you've got your princess, Coco Chan, yeah, you want her to go and marry the your great-nephew, the Argon Khan, the new Eel Khan over in the middle of Central Asia, you know, Maybe we should go as ambassadors and you know, escort her there to make sure she gets there safely. And that's how they <laughs> all the time they were planning on doing a run. Yeah, exactly. They're going to, when we get to Persia, we're not going to turn around. We're going to keep going and get back home. To, so um, you, when you say we're talking about you know, modern day Iran now, around, around that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he went there, but unfortunately, by the time they got there, old Argon Khan had actually died. So she ended up marrying his son, the new incarnate. But yes, they said hello, said goodbye, and kept on going. <laughs> thanks for coming. And, yeah, thanks for coming. And quickly sped off back to Venice to finally return home uh, triumphant. But I think it also, I was looking at that map, and again, it just goes to show, doesn't it, Mike, what we were saying about the Silk Road and the Spice Route, that when, these were not rivals by this, certainly no. not by the 13th century. It was just one enormously successful trade network which would go by land, by sea, whichever way they could, because politics meant that, you know, with wars and things, the routes would change virtually every every time you, you set foot and also, too, we've had a few requests to do more. <laughs> this is going to warm your heart. To do more stuff on the Silk Road. <laughs> yes, Cause, cause we did. Lazy was, Lisa, thank you. Yeah, yeah, um, and, a few other, and also, because it wasn't just about the trade. It was about ideas. It was yep. about language. It was yep. about culture. That's right. And we'll get to my favourite topic. It'll be about food as well. That's right. Okay, so we'll be looking a bit more at the, at the end of the Silk Road and uh, the Chinese um, involvements, particularly in season two. But before we do that, Mikey, you, you were having a little rummage around. Cause a we poke get, around. Yeah, with the... Some of the people were asking questions. Could we give them a bit more info on Rusticello? Rusticello, um, the, the man who actually wrote 
the travels or wrote the travels on behalf of Marco, the, the scribe, because he was more than just a scribe. Well, right? I mean, in fact, by the time he ends up sharing the same prison cell as Marco Polo, mm-hmm. he's already a well-established writer. Sure. Now, we don't know a lot about Rosticello de Pisa, apart from the fact he was born in Pisa. Right. Don't really know when he was born, don't really know when he was he died, but... But we do know he was a writer. We do know yeah. he's writing quite a lot of stuff at yeah, the time. He starts off and predominantly he writes romantic... Love, po- yeah, love poems. Love, love poems and verse and stories, but mm. here's one I hadn't expected. Right. He also has another strange association with another huge figure in history. Mm. And someone you're not going to think about. Right, go on. If I was to say, uh, Italy, uh, Mr. Um, Mr. Longshanks, uh, Hammer of the Scots. Edward I in England. Of England. Okay, the story goes that when Edward I. But he was in Italy. Oh. He, on his oh, way to the Crusades. Yes. Ran the about Ninth the tw- Crusade. Yeah, he ran, went, ran he about went the 12th through Italy, yeah. didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. the story goes that Rusticello gets a copy of... King Arthur legends, which had belonged to Edward I. Right, yeah, sure. Now, he gets them, he reads them, and then from that he picks, well, I'm going to say, I'm not going to say the saucy bits, but he <laughs> picks out a couple of bits of them yeah. and puts out some some books right. on Arthurian legend, which he right. writes in French. Okay. But, but then, Yeah, French being literally yeah. a lingua franca at the time yeah, for yeah. a lot of this uh, writing. Yeah, go on. But he's the first Italian to Even write. Even though he's an Italian. Yeah, yeah okay, right. And, and they're known as the compilation. There's and, of course, Edward I, because he would be the French influence on the English court. Yeah. So they were, they, were, they were a lot of – I think they could all speak French um, or were still speaking French, French in the English court at the time. So, yeah, that's just A lot, a lot of them were. And, and so, so what, what you actually end up getting is he, he becomes a best-selling author. Yeah. So when Polo walks into that prison cell after being mm. you know, captured during that war between the, uh, the the uh, the Venetians and the Genoese. He's not just meeting some old hack. No, it, it's like he's walking in and there's the, the, there's the Italian version of Jackie Collins, you know, the writer of best-selling naughty romantic fiction, and and he's having a bunkbuster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and old Rosticello, even though he's now faded from history, mm. his works, particularly those Arthurian ones, mm. were bestsellers for centuries. Of centu- the time, yeah. no, no, for centuries. Oh, right, centuries. Next off, we did uh, Burke and Wills. That's right. And a lot of people said to us, but no, I do agree with them. There is something really poignant about the heroic failure. Yes. I mean, it's not just... It's not, not just the winners, yes. It's not, it's not just the winners, but you know, it's those who tried and unfortunately didn't come back, which mm. is very, it's very much grounded in our culture. That's right, yeah. And you've got the, yeah, the heroes in history, yeah, people like Che Guevara who haven't succeeded necessarily, right. even more poetic. And there was, that, there was a nice point made and um, sent in by one of the listeners. It was that great scrap of paper that was found on the body of Scott and the, uh, of the Antarctic. What's that? And, and he said, I've done this to show what Englishmen can do. What, lose to Norwegians? <laughs> oh, that's very harsh, mate. Very harsh. Okay, so Burke and Wills. So, well, basically, my, I, I wanted to come back in here because a lot of our listeners, and, and, and look, great, is we've got a lot of listeners in Australia doing uh, really, really pleased with that. But it's amazing how many listeners we've got from outside of Australia. Yeah, we've right. got Malaysia, a Vietnam. A big cheerio to uh, all those in Ireland. Whatever. Yeah, Brazil, Canada, um, with Ghana. But yeah, we've got, we've got some listeners yeah, in Ghana. Two listeners in Ghana, which I'm very happy with. Um, cool. And, of course, New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, now some of them have said to us, you know, as much as the dig tree is so famous in, in Australia. For, uh, Australia for Australian which is children, why we, children, which is why we concentrate on the first part. And yeah, no one knew about the beginning, but everyone knows the end. Right. But to be honest, Mike, it, yeah, and I think in exactly the same way when I first arrived, you know, I didn't know the end either. So we special request. Can we quickly 
go into the details and just show how much of a cock-up the whole that, dig tree, the whole dig tree the, the was. The debacle at the end. So, um, yeah, in the episode itself, of course, yeah, we, we'd got to that point where they'd sort of split into three, hadn't they? So you've got yeah. in Menindi, you're, you're with your famous coach, yeah. right? Um, you've got Wright, he's in charge of a base camp, if you like. Then you've got Cooper's Creek. That's as basically as far as the main... It's the middle party um, got, if you like, and that they leave Brahe, McDonough, Patton, and Dos Mohammed. I think they're they're left there while the small advance party dash that dash up to the Gulf of Carpentaria, and that's uh, got your your Wills, your Burke, your King, and your Gray. So if you imagine there, folks, you've got they've left on the sixteenth of December. Even though everyone's told Burke, don't leave yet. You'll never get there. It's too hot. It's the middle of summer. You should wait it out um, until autumn. But he said, no, we're going to go. We're going to go for the coast from Cooper's Creek. And Cooper's Creek, everybody, just to give you an idea, they're about two thirds. Well, yeah, maybe they've got about two thirds of the way from Melbourne to the coast. And these four. The Gulf, the Gulf. Sorry, the Gulf. Yeah, the, these four men, uh, Burke, Wills, King and Grey, they have charged off saying they're going to try and make hit water if they can and and discover the trans crossing now the accounts as far as i can see mikey mm-hmm. burke says to brahe mcdonough Patton, and dos Mohammed, the four that they leave in cooper's creek he tells them well if we're not back in three months forget it go home fair enough now well no will says no no that's that don't be look let's call it four months yeah just okay. in case yeah just in case let's do they've got enough provisions that'll last them for four months and old righty the old mr right he's in menindi and he's got another load of provisions ready which, to head up well he's supposed to be there by now but he, apparently he's been messing around in menindi so he does cause a bit of a problem but eventually <laughs> he's a phrase no one has ever said before messing around in menindi <laughs> he's he should be arriving with more provisions okay right. so they go off on on the uh, December. Now, the Brahe, McDonough, Patton and Dos Mohanet, they do as Wills asks. They they stay there four for months. four months, not three. So they stay an extra month until the 21st of April, 1861. And then they say, okay, they these guys really are not going to come back. Right. We're stuck here in Cooper's Creek. Look, let's go back down to Menindi, get some more... Uh, provisions, mm-hmm. and then maybe come back up again and have a look around for a second time. So, but there, they uh, Brahe says, Well, look, if we're going to do that, we should leave some sort of messages just in case they do come back, right? right. So, so that's when they carve these messages on these big Kaluba trees, which are those big, enormous trees yeah, that you get in, in the desert. Uh, and so they carve three messages on two of the trees, and on one of the trees, very simple, it just says, Dig. Yeah, and it's a an, an arrow and and, and um, uh, indicating that you could dig it under this sign. They bury, I think it's twenty three uh, kilograms of flour, twenty three kilograms of oatmeal, twenty three kilograms of sugar, fourteen kilograms of rice, and they say you know it's buried, and they put the date that they've buried these right. underneath the word dig, thinking that if. By any chance, these others four are alive. If they do return to Cooper's Creek... There's enough to keep them going. Left to keep them going. And at 10 a.m., they set off to Menindi. Right. Right. Now, a couple of days before that, Gray has died. But Wills, Burke and King are still alive. Right. They've hit the Gulf. They've seen water. They've returned. 
They're not doing very well. They've got two camels left. They're, you know, they're dying of starvation and thirst, but they're still alive. And they fall into camp on the evening, the same evening, 21st of April, 1861. The others have left. So the others are left at 10 a.m. Right. They've, they've dug the hole, left the provisions and scarpered. And in the evening, yeah. same day, the three arrive back. And this is where it gets weird. Rather than <laughs> go yeah. to the big tree that says dig with yeah. all the provisions. Which is a bit of a giveaway, really. You think so? Yeah. They say, no, we'll leave them just in case. We don't need them just yet. We've got enough to survive a little bit longer. No. We don't want to use these just yet. Let's keep going. Because maybe if they've just left, because they've left the date underneath. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah you said and it, it's yeah. the same date, right? Right. So they're going, well, maybe we can catch these guys up. No. And, and we'll be all right. But then, and this is why your man Burke is, a Burke. is, is an absolute Burke. Rather than head to Menindi, oh, yeah. he says, no, 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 no. It was very dry that way. It was, it was a nightmare. Let's go the other way. Let's go along Cooper's Creek, follow the water, because then we'll be safer. And, okay, it's going to be a longer way round, but that will take us to one of those big outstations. I think it was called Blanche Water Station, by, by the aptly named Mount Hopeless. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, see, <laughs> well, never a good sign if you're exploring. <laughs> and that's on the border of South Australia. So he says, now, if we go that way, yeah, and just follow the water, at least we won't run out of water. And that'll be much smarter than trying to catch these guys up on the way back to Menindee. So... Off they set. Leaving all those buried provisions behind. And they've left them all behind. They said, no, we'll, we'll leave them just in case. If it doesn't work, we'll come back, eat these positions, and then we'll go to Menindi. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So Brahe, who's gone that morning with his, his Dost Mohammed and the other boys, he goes down, he's heading to Menindi, and a week later, he bumps into Wright, who's finally bringing up the provisions for Menindi. And he goes, okay, well, look, they never came back. What should we do? And Wright well, goes, well, you know, look, I bought all the provisions. We might as well go to Cooper's Creek back just in, just in case. They're probably not going to be there, but you oh, never know. Oh, hang on, but they've, got, they've gone. Right. So they turn around and they go back up to Cooper's Creek. This is the, the rescue ex expedition, if you like, Brahe and Wright. And they get there on the 5th of May. But yes, as you say, Mikey, by then... Burke and Wills have now set, set off the wrong way yeah, yeah, yeah. down Cooper's Creek yeah. towards Mount Hopeless. Yeah, So they, when they get there, and for some reason they haven't dug up the provisions and they haven't left any notes for themselves. And there's no sign that Burke and Wills have been there at all. They've left no evidence. This is stupid. So when Brahe and Wright eventually get back to Cooper's Great Creek for the second time, yeah. they don't even realise that Burke and Wills have, have passed through and so they go, well, yeah, I told you they're, 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 they're I told you they're dead. They're definitely gone. Forget about it. Let's turn around and let's go back. And they make their way all the way back to Melbourne. The, via the way they came. Via the way they came, via Menindee. Wills, yeah. three days down Cooper's Creek, goes, actually, you know, <laughs> you know what, Bert? This was, really was a stupid idea. See, he should have said that ages ago, <laughs> back in the park in Melbourne. So now Wills goes yeah. back. To Cooper's Creek. So so Wills has gone up to the Gulf and yeah. he's come back to Cooper's Creek. He's gone down the creek, he's come back to Cooper's Creek. Oh. Brahe and Wright have come in and out and in and out. No one's left any signs these time. So Wills gets back and he doesn't know that Brahe and Wright have been back for the second time and missed them because they missed them the first time. So Wills says, oh, so I've, the, the, I've had enough of this. So he goes, we're, never get, we're definitely going to die. So he buries all his journals and he leaves a note saying, I'm out of here. 
we're all going to die. It's all finished. And off he, he goes down the creek. He catches up with Burke. And you know, the, by this stage, they're eating ground nardu. Now, I don't know what ground nardu is, Mike. I don't know if... Um, it, does, it, it, it doesn't sound very good. Yeah. And apparently, you've got to prepare it specially, otherwise, otherwise it poisons you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so basically, they, they although they're eating stuff, they're essentially poisoning themselves to death. And sure enough, Wills dies and then Burke dies. But then King runs into a group of Aborigines and they look after him and they nurture him so that he is eventually found on the 15th of September by Alfred William Howitt's rescue mission. Yeah, so, can, yeah. can I just say, this whole this whole thing, the dig tree, it's sort of like the Outback Explorers version of phone tag. <laughs> well, yeah, in, out, in, out, shake it all about, but no one gets the right in and everyone's on the wrong out. It's, it's unbelievable. But what I really found unbelievable, I was thinking, oh. when I was looking at this, the Royal Geographic Society of Australasia, Mikey. Yeah. Yeah. They award Burke a posthumous founder's medal well, for, for the expedition, even though he found nothing and killed everyone and was the idiot. And they give Wills nothing. Why? Right. Because you're only allowed to have one medal per exploration party. So Burke got the medal, even though he was a dumbo. And Wills got nothing, even though he tried to tried to save everybody. Um, yeah, and, and things have changed how, mate? <laughs> well, I, I, I just thought it was very harsh on Wills. King got nothing. King got a watch <laughs> for surviving. Yeah, there um, you go. And Gray got nothing. And Wills got nothing. But uh, yeah, so folks, uh, international listeners, if you ever come to Australia, you can go. You're still there, Mike. You didn't yeah. realise this. You can go and see the dig tree. You can go and see the words dig written on it. They're, apparently, they're 200, 250-year-old coolabar trees now, and they're standing above the creek on the southern bank, and I've, uh, I've searched this, southern bank of the Bulu Bulu waterhole. So, yeah, if you've got a bit of time on your holidays, that's yeah. where you want to go. And just just put the directions in your phone. <laughs> just drop a pin. Yeah, sat it's, all it's, right it's, now. it's a lot it's easier. All right, and that brings us to the last episode, uh, episode 10, The Gunpowder Plot. Um, and I must admit, Mikey, yeah, when, my, when I first mentioned to one of my friends that we we're going to do Heroes and Howlers, he yeah. said, oh, I'm glad about Paul, you must be doing The Gunpowder Plot. That's probably the, the best cock-up in history. And it's true, it was a great cock-up. Oh, mate, it's one of those ones, even as an Aussie kid, we got taught that one at school because it's just so stupid. But as we said, yeah, the whole point of that episode was it, in, in many ways it, it raises more questions than it does Answers, yeah, you know, and, uh, and we a lot of listeners were sending in pics, uh, those classic pics all over the place now, aren't they, of, of the Guido masks. You know what the thing that amazes me about them? It yeah. doesn't matter whether it's a left-wing demonstration <laughs> or a right-wing demonstration. Yeah. Someone, someone's, someone's wearing a Guido Someone's mask. wearing the old Forks mask, you know, with the, with the pointy beard. And the, that's right. Yeah. Well, that, and that's it. And I think because it ties in completely with what we were saying about, you know, this, this big PR campaign, which is basically launched by King James and Cecil, you know, to try and make it look like it's all the Spanish. Uh, and that Guido mask is perfect because it is. It looks like some sort of Spanish conquistador yeah. musketeer, doesn't it? it? Yeah, yeah. It looks like Don Quixote. Yeah, yeah. where in actual fact, of course, uh, um, Guy Fawkes was a strapping Yorkshire lad. But there you go. So the, the, but, but the, 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 they started calling him Guido Fawkes as, as, as a yeah, PR to, thing. to try and make him sound Spanish. And then they, you know, they execute Henry Garnet, who's one of the Jesuits in 1606. They say, oh, you must have been part of the plot as well. But actually, you know, it was uh, nothing to do um, with the Jesuits at all. They, they, they'd, they'd repeatedly said, no, don't do anything. You know, let's try and keep a bit of calm here. Because... 
at the time there were so many other rebellions and yeah that's what that's the point I wanted to make oh yeah um, it, what, okay Catesby yes he was a Catholic and he probably had an axe to grind but you know you got the by plot um, just a couple of years before and that's got Walter Raleigh as one of the main conspirators yeah, yeah so there's lots of rebellion going on at that, uh, that time Walter, the, Walter Raleigh who was Walter Raleigh. so dedicated to Queen Elizabeth he he's in rebellion against James yeah that's right the, the, the guy with the cloak yeah yeah, yeah yeah puts it down over the puddle yeah so he rebels against James yeah so there's a lot of rebellion going on not not just because the Catholics, but because, as we said, this anti-Scottish and this anti-this, they didn't like the new faction at court. And but you, you, there was something you wanted to say about the plotters, wasn't it? Just you found one last cock up, I think. Mike. Yeah, well, exactly. Someone asked me, what happened after the arrest? What sure. Well, it's it's sort of weird. You mentioned Robert Catesby, right? Mm. So about two days after Fawkes is arrested you know, underneath the House of Parliament mm. and, and tortured and beaten. Yeah. Um, the uh, the Catesby and the rest of the conspirators are at uh, Warwick Castle, so, so it's taken a, a day or two for the word to get to them. Mm. So they saddle up and they bolt out. Now the problem is when they leave Warwick Castle, it's pouring rain, right? Absolutely, but and, th- and this is important because along the way, they get to Hanwell Grange, which is the home of the Worcestershire Lord, the noble Lord Windsor. Right. It's important because they break into his. They do a bit of B and E. Oh, right. <laughs> and they steal some gunpowder because they, they know they're going to have to make a stand somewhere. Right. So they think we've got to load up with gunpowder. Right. So they get some gunpowder, but they then get back on their horses and go back out in dreadful like peeing down weather. <laughs> proper English weather. Yeah, go on. Yeah, probably, probably English weather. Till they get to whole big house, mm. whole big house in Staffordshire, mm. where they decide they're going to hole up. Now, next morning, they wake up and they discover that the gunpowder they've stolen was now damp. Oh. Now, the usual method, if you've got damp gunpowder, which works, has worked for centuries, is you spread it out in the sun and it dries. And right. that's quite... But, but there isn't, isn't much sun in Staffordshire. It is no. pouring down. <laughs> So plan B, mate. Um, this is this is where I, I think it's so funny that the gunpowder plot yeah. concludes with this: they spread the gunpowder to dry in front of the open fire. What could go wrong? <laughs> well, according to Father oh John, Ger- you've heard of Father John Gerard. Behold, a spark falling out of the fire took hold of the power, and blowing that up hurt diverse of them. Ooh. In fact, uh, Casey was injured, as indeed were several others. Mm. John Grant who was one of the other conspirators, mm. according to yep. Gerard, had his eyes almost burnt out. Oh, dear. Oh, um, so so ha- the gunpowder potters got gunpowdered. Yeah, <laughs> they got blown up, basically. <laughs> they got, they're the ones who got blown up. Yeah, I like that. That's and, good. And during the, during the rest of the... In fact, the only, the only people blown up by the gunpowder plot <laughs> were the, the plotters in, in Holbeck House. <laughs> All right. But Holbeck House still stands today, and you're not going to believe this, it's a private nursing home. Oh, there you go. <laughs> All right. And there's just one other tweet. Um, yeah. Did want to say uh, the question, who would they have put on the throne uh, and, that's, and that is a good question um, you know, what what was the plan because of course the, it wasn't just the king who was going to die in the plot it, it would have been Henry Prince of Wales well he would have been there the queen would have been there yeah so uh, who perhaps might have taken over now Charles was only four at the time so it probably wouldn't have been him it looks like their plan was to put Elizabeth who was the daughter she's about nine years old daughter of James James and uh, James the first daughter Look, we don't know whether she was particularly Protestant or Catholic. Obviously, at nine years old, you, you can't tell. But that was the plan. And But it is quite interesting for me because, look, you know, I, I love my counterfactual history games, you know, the what-ifs and that yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I can play them all day. But it's uh, what's interesting for me on this one is that what they weren't trying to do 
was get rid of the monarchy. It wasn't like the, the, Puritans, the Civil War, well, no, the no. Puritans and the Roundheads later, uh, 50 years later. At this stage, you know, no one was thinking, let's get rid of the monarchy. It was purely, let's change the monarchy. Because at this stage, the Puritans, I mean, there were some about, but they were not the force they were 50 years later. That's right. Okay, folks, so that's the end of our second serve of Extra Helpings. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Mikey. Yeah, yeah. And just like last time, folks, uh, if you can... Please keep in touch on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. And also, too, don't forget, it's always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist, that's right, and you'll find that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's it's great to get the feedback. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, if you've just joined us, there's a whole season you can go back and listen to. That's right, 10 episodes in season one. It's, it's all history, it's all fresh. <laughs> and, of course, next week... We are launching season two. Yeah, so Mikey, we're not going to pour crackling just yet, but you've you've promised us some snacks. Oh, mate, there will be snacks. <laughs> Cast right. you on the other side. Okay, a new dawn. Mm-hmm.